I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom Yulesman. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 6, 2015. Coming up, if you think all that indulging in alcohol over the holidays widened your waist, you may be right. As Washington Post health columnist Jill Adams will discuss with us. And despite appearances, global warming has not taken a holiday. In fact, it could get worse, as we'll hear from NCAR scientist Diane Thompson. And another NCAR scientist, Britt Stevens, will discuss how tropical forests absorb more carbon dioxide than was previously thought. Forests are currently providing a tremendous climate benefit, but we don't know if this will continue. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Hey, what's that sound? What you just heard was the dulcet tones of a swamp sparrow, a lovely song made up of different notes. Because these songs are constructed from smaller units, it's thought that birds have a phonology similar to human speech, which is also made up of smaller building blocks called phoneme. Phonology refers to the distribution and patterning of speech sounds. For humans, context is everything. Where a phoneme occurs in a sentence can change the perception of that phoneme to the listener. To find out whether the same is true for birds, scientists at Duke University Medical School played snippets of bird song to groups of swamp sparrows in Pennsylvania. The snippets varied in the placement of key notes. The researchers found that the listening sparrows responded differently depending on where the notes were placed, say, at the beginning or the end of a bird song. This finding implied that the bird's perception of the stimuli song depended on the context of the notes as much as the sound of the notes. The scientists say this is the first evidence that this central characteristic of human phonology is also found in non-human communication systems. It suggests that such complex phonology can evolve without the richness of syntax or semantics. The study was published Monday in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. On this week's science calendar, Stephen Palumbi, a professor of biology at Stanford University, will speak with his son, Anthony, about a book they co-wrote called The Extreme Life of the Sea. You think it's cold here now? Well, try life as a narwhal, a unicorn-like whale which dwells way above the Arctic Circle in the winter. The authors will discuss how many mysterious creatures live in extreme hot and cold marine environments. Presented by the Colorado Ocean Coalition and Ocean First Divers, the event will take place on Wednesday night from 6.30 to 8.30 at 3015 Bluff Street. For more information, go to coloradoocean.org. Well, my baby, she's gone, gone every night. They seen the girl since the night before last Gonna get drunk and get her off of my mind But one woman, then one scotch, then one beer You're listening to KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. So after all that indulging you did over the holiday, you may be wondering if you can blame some extra pounds on all those libations. Jill Adams, a health columnist for the Washington Post, wondered about that too. Enough to do some research into the science, in fact. Her article appeared just before Christmas, and she's on the line from Albany, New York, to share what she discovered. Jill, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So what does the latest science tell us about this connection between alcohol and weight gain, and should we be surprised? 
Well, I think what the science tells us, uh, well, the science tells us a mixed message. So um, you kind of have to go in and look at your own patterns of drinking and figure out where you lie on what is known. And, and let me break that down a little bit. Um, essentially, if you look at a single day or a single evening of drinking, people tend to take in a lot more calories. Some of those calories come from the alcoholic drink itself. Some of those calories come from eating more. Alcohol seems to work like an, ap- um, an appetite stimulant. Right. And also um, you might be a little bit more indulgent, right? You're out and having a good time and you're not thinking about counting calories or, 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 or moderating in any sense. Um, the, the mixed message part is when you look at long-term studies, this is over years and years and thousands and thousands of people, generally people who drink moderately, and that's sort of one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men, those people tend to weigh less than either heavy drinkers or teetotalers. Wait, hold the phone. You said the moderate drinker for a guy is two a day, but we only get one a day? That seems so unfair. Well, between you and me, that's a bummer. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Is that just because of body size or something else conspiring here? You know, I don't really know if it's uh, mere size or if there's some metabolism difference. Um, and I'll also say it, at least one person I talked to for my article said that, you know, sometimes those definitions are sort of uh, socially constructed. So what's considered moderate drinking in the U.S. isn't the same as what it is in the U.K. or maybe in the Czech Republic. But once those numbers hold and scientists tend to use those as the same category, so you can, they can compare their research to previous research, Anyway, so most of the data we know is for that for that um, unfortunate one drink a day <laughs> number for women. Yeah. So you mentioned in your column that you had trepidation about even doing this research because you know you like your wine. So I like my wine. Did you come yeah. away from this? And I know you looked at a bunch of different studies, short and long term population studies, and another. Did you walk away feeling, oh, all right, I can have one a day and I'm fine, or a little more worried about it? No, absolutely. I came away feeling like, okay, as long as I'm moderate, especially during the week, you know, not not have a glass of wine while I'm making dinner and then top it up at dinner and then maybe another one when I sit by the fire to read my book after dinner, um, you know, then I'm probably doing okay and don't need to look at my alcohol intake as a contributor to my middle age weight gain. So it sounds like from what you're saying, though, it's really hard to tease out calories from food and you may be taking in more of that, or some, or also calories, say, from the sugar in a margarita versus strictly calories from the alcohol itself. Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the bottom lines is you're still counting calories, right? So part of the message, perhaps, if, if you're somebody who is watching their weight, um, is to remember to count the calories from alcohol, to remember to count the calories from the mixtures that you might use in a mixed drink, and to remember that liquid calories actually don't typically don't fill you up the same way as food calories do. So, you know, there there is um, risk there for taking in too much, and, and if you're somebody who's watching your weight, you might want to just be aware of that. And then you said there, there's actually some good news for social drinkers in that, at least from some epidemiological studies, you showed that moderate drinkers, I think, tend to gain less weight over time. Right than those teetotalers. How does that square? Right. Well, this one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men, this category of moderate drinking, 
um, those people do better on a whole bunch of measures. So they tend to weigh less. They tend to have better heart health. They tend to live longer. So all these long-range studies show a little bit of alcohol, again, moderate, one drink a day, not overindulging too much, all this kind of stuff. Um, You actually are better off than not drinking at all. Well, on that note then, (laughs) okay, I think we'll we'll continue to take a look at studies. And thank you so much for that. That was Jill Adams, a science journalist who writes a health column for the Washington Post. You'll find a link to her article on this show's post later on at howonearthradio.org. Thanks so much, Jill. Thank you. You're tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Tom Yulesman. You may have heard that during the past 10 years, global warming has been on a holiday. Well, it's not really true, but increases in temperature at the Earth's surface have slowed down over the past decade, prompting scientists to work hard to figure out why. It seems that heat building up in our planet's climate system due to our greenhouse gas emissions has been winding up deep in the Pacific Ocean. But why? And is this anything new? Our guest... Diane Thompson, a postdoctoral scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, has found some answers in a sample of coral from a remote atoll in the tropical Pacific. Diane, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks for having me, Tom. So to get started, tell us about the slowdown of global warming at Earth's surface during the past 10 years. What seems to be behind it, at least in part, and how did this motivate your research? Yeah, so since about 2000, there's been a um, slowdown in the rate of warming. So it's still warming. Uh, It's not exactly a hiatus, as it's been termed. But the warming has slowed. And and so there's been a lot of work to try to determine why that is. Where is this, quote unquote, missing heat going? And it turns out that the much of it may be going into the subsurface of the tropical Pacific. And the way this is thought to work through modeling and observational studies is that when winds in the tropical Pacific are very strong, it mixes more of the heat into the subsurface ocean, leaving less in the air and therefore um, causing a slowdown in the warming of the atmosphere. So your research used a, a sample of coral from a remote Pacific Ocean atoll to help investigate what's been going on in the Pacific. And it's a rather fascinating scientific detective story. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so motivated by these recent studies that have shown that winds are really important in in the most recent hiatus, we wanted to know whether this has happened before. And it turns out that there's a coral record, um, a coral sample from a small atoll near the equator in the dateline that because of where it's located, can tell us a lot about past wind changes. And so how this works is this particular island is shaped like a backward sea. And because of that, it's actually the lagoon that's in the center of the sea is blocked from the trade winds which blow from the east. And as a result, the lagoon is typically calm, and there's a uh, buildup of trace metals in the lagoon, particularly a chemical called manganese. But occasionally you get these bursts of winds coming in from the west, and it causes strong waves and a mixing of the sediments, and the the manganese gets released into the seawater. And so our coral growing nearby doesn't know any better, and it continues to grow, and it ends up incorporating that manganese into its skeleton in place of calcium that would otherwise be present. So the coral, um, or at least the chemical fingerprints in the coral, are telling you something about the the winds and 
uh, the wind births from the west when they're really active and when they're not. So what did this add up to? What was the significant result that you found? Yeah, so it turns out that these bursts, because they go in the opposite direction from the west than the trade winds, which blow from the east, they're less common when the trade winds are really strong. So we can use these bursts of winds, these these spikes of manganese in the coral, to look at past uh, trade wind um, strength. And so what we found is that in the early 20th century, when actually a third of the warming occurred, and, and previously we don't really understand why the warming was so rapid in the early 20th century, it turns out during that period that trade winds were very weak. We got lots of these bursts of, of, of westerly winds and, and manganese spikes in our coral record. And then into the mid-20th century, when warming slowed down, we see less of these bursts. And, and in other words, the trade winds strengthened. And this tells us that trade winds in the tropical Pacific are, in fact, playing an important role in the, in the rate of warming, such that when trade winds are very strong, like they have been since 2000, you get a slowdown in the warming. And in the opposite sense, when trade winds are weak, you get an acceleration of warming. So when uh, in, in this stage that we're in right now, Tell us how that change in the wind leads to some of that heat winding up in the Pacific Ocean and thus a slowdown in in warming. Yeah, so like I said earlier, it it involves the mixing of the heat into the subsurface ocean. And so when the winds are strong, you get more of that mixing. And so basically since 2000, the winds have been acting to give us a a sort of temporary reprieve from warming. And so even though we're continuing to pump greenhouse gases into our atmosphere, some of that heat is going down into the subsurface ocean. And so... Once winds inevitably weaken, which we know they will, because we know that this cycle flip-flops between periods of strong winds and and weak winds, that warming will once again accelerate. Um, Do we have a sense of when that might happen? How long is this cycle? So this cycle is typically on the order of a few decades, so typically less than about 30 years. And so we know that we've been in the current cycle with really strong winds since about 2000. So although we may not be able to anticipate the exact timing of this shift, we do know that it'll happen sometime in the next one or two decades. So um, we just got some data from uh, from the Japan Meteorological Agency that it looks like 2014 will actually go down in the record books as the warmest uh, uh, since record keeping began in the 1880s. So could this possibly be a sign that the slowdown is over or perhaps is it simply an indication that this phenomenon called El Nino is trying to take hold and then that's behind the warming? What, what, what Are we seeing now anything related to... Uh, you know what you've been talking about? It's certainly too early for me to really um, connect what I've done with that particular um, really warm year that we've had now. But it, it could be a sign that we're shifting. It's really too early to say. And then how about extending the research? I mean, the, the, the fascinating story that you were able to tell about where the heat is going or why the heat is going into the Pacific is based on one coral mm-hmm. from one lagoon. So yeah. what comes next? Yeah, so we certainly want to do more of this. So now that we realize the importance of these these manganese records, it turns out there's a lot of atolls like this in the tropical Pacific that have west-facing lagoons, where a similar study can be used to look at past changes in winds. So we have plans to go back, and we actually have samples from one of these sites so that we can reproduce this record. And you're getting ready to go to? The Galapagos, actually, to collect more samples, exactly. Poor baby. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Diane Thompson, an NCAR scientist whose research suggests that global warming could get worse in coming years.
Thanks for listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. It's been known for many years that tropical forests are not only rich in biodiversity, but they also absorb a lot of carbon dioxide that humans emit into the atmosphere. That means that these intact forests help slow the pace of global warming. But just how much greenhouse gases, namely CO2, these forests take up, say compared with temperate and boreal forests, has been tough to quantify. A new study, led by researchers at NASA and the National Center for Atmospheric Research, shows that tropical forests may be absorbing far more human-emitted CO2 than many scientists had previously thought. Britton Stevens, an atmospheric scientist at NCAR, who's studying the global carbon cycle, is one of the authors. And he's here with us to discuss the findings and the implications. Britt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So for starters, bring us to these forests. This is not just the Amazon. This is a whole sort of system, whole type of forest you're talking about, right? Uh, yes. Well, if I could back up a little bit, the big picture is that we we know globally forests are taking up um, about a quarter of the carbon dioxide that we're emitting from burning fossil fuels. And that's, of course, uh, uh, you know, a great thing. That's if they, huge. If they that's all forests. Right. right. And if they were not doing that, uh, you know, the concerns about global warming would be, you know, even more serious already. Uh, but we don't understand the, the where and the why of that uptake well enough to predict um, uh, its behavior in the future. So uh, in terms of the where, which forests are responsible for mm-hmm. taking up and storing that carbon dioxide and then uh, what processes in those forests. So, um so people have looked hard at the forests in northern mid-latitudes and boreal regions. Um, suspected. So just below Arctic. Exactly. Um, uh, and for example, suspecting that because we cut down a lot of the forests in the U.S. and Europe in the 1800s, that uh, growing, regrowing <coughs> forests might be responsible for the uptake we're seeing. Uh, and then people have looked hard at the tropics, uh, suspecting that possibly uh, by increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're actually enabling those trees to grow faster. And it's uh, it's still an open. And how does that happen? So it's this connection between the CO two so called fertilization, all that we're pumping up into the atmosphere, and what the plants are actually exactly just in. like you know the uh, plants need nutrients to grow. Uh, they also need carbon dioxide, and if we put more of it in the atmosphere, they can actually grow. Uh, they can photosynthesize. Um, One person's a, poison is another's treasure. <laughs> yes, exactly. They can photosynthesize, photosynthesize at a faster rate, and uh, in particular, plants that are water-stressed uh, do a lot better when CO2 is higher. Now, they can't offset all of the CO2 that we've emitted, but um, but they can uh, they can do a little bit. So, uh, so this uh, question of um, uh, how are the trees responding to uh, yeah, the change you, that we're imposing that is, is um, what's been driving a lot of this research. And and how did you actually go about it? Because I know a lot of different studies have been done on so to what degree the tropical and other forests are a carbon sink or source. But in, in your case, how, right. how did you actually go about it? So we are, this particular uh, paper uh, brought together four different lines of evidence. It turns out that because carbon dioxide is this colorless, odorless gas that exists at very small concentrations, it's it's quite difficult to figure out where it's going. Uh, so people have used a lot of different techniques. The the four um, techniques that we uh, compared in our study were, uh, were um, what are called bottom-up inventories, people going around the forest and counting trees and measuring how wide they are. Literally 
counting them. Exactly. Um, and you can only do that, you know, for a very small percentage of the actual uh, tropical forests because they are so vast. And is it meaningful even to do that? Can you extrapolate on a much broader level? Well, people have... I mean, it yeah, sounds fun. Yeah. But... You're, I mean, you're, it is a lot of work and there are some um, concerns about the extrapolation, but um, the studies um, the studies are quite convincing that in the intact tropical forests, there appears to be uh, a signal of increased uh, store, increased carbon storage over the past um, uh, several decades. Right. So that's one of the lines of evidence. That exactly. You uh, the second is really um, uh, sort of the theoretical um, approach, but uh, we build our best um, theoretical understanding into computer models. So we looked at uh, computer models of um, of forests and what they predicted should be happening with increasing CO2. And those also show a significant increase in uh, in carbon storage in response to CO2 fertilization. Within these same forest systems. Exactly. It, it tends to uh, happen. It happens everywhere, but it tends to happen more in the tropics because photosynthesis is so strong there. So you've got the tree rings. You've got the models. Yeah. And then uh, the, the third would just be the... The, the global rate of increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. The atmosphere is this great integrator, and if uh, uh, if you put CO2 in or take CO2 out, you get a very good measure of, of what the total is. And that uh, is suggesting that the amount of uptake and storage by the forest has increased over the past 150 years. And and that, that increase in the amount that's going in today are, are both consistent with uh, CO2 fertilization. Even with all the deforestation in the Amazon and elsewhere happening? Right. So we, we know that, we're, uh, that cutting down tropical forests is emitting a, a large amount of CO2 to the atmosphere. So what we're really looking for is whether uh, the net uh, exchange with the tropical forests is a positive in emission or about zero, whether the uptake is offsetting all of that, that burning. And what, what we're finding is that it's, it's about uh, the net flux is about zero. So the intact forests are offsetting uh, what's being emitted by cutting and burning. So message, keep them intact as much as possible. Uh, yes, of course. That's one of the um, big takeaways is that those tropical forests can only uh, continue to provide this great uh, climate benefit if we if we leave them there. And, I mean, did some of this surprise you or, for that matter, other researchers? Well, uh, there is the fourth line of evidence is uh, what we know from the distribution of CO2 in the atmosphere. And we, we use um, models of winds to try and infer what, what the uh, exchange at the surface must have been to produce those variations. And it turns out that those studies for a long time have suggested uh, that the uptake was in uh, northern mid-latitudes and, and high latitudes. And so that, um, that's really the, um, the big sort of controversy at the moment is whether or not these, these models of the winds um, have problems or whether they're right and there's something wrong with the other um, pieces of evidence. Interesting. As Tom's interview with Diane Thompson suggests, there's, there's a lot about the trade winds. Uh, yes, of course. And I, yeah, I should point out that the, um, yeah, the, the uncertainty in the winds, the uncertainty in the forests both play a big role in predicting future temperatures. Well, thank you. We'll definitely keep following this. Um, that was Dr. Britton Stevens, a scientist at NCAR, discussing his new study on tropical forest as critical carbon sinks. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks again. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this quarter is Kendra Kruger. Susan Moran produced this show. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from John Lee Hooker and The Bad Plus. 
And thanks to Robert Lachlan at Duke University for the Sparrow recordings. Also, thanks to Jane Palmer for her headline contribution. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Tom Yulesman. And I'm Susan Moran.